Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. Another day, another week of programs here on the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. No, that's not an autocorrect. We're not Canada's most irrelevant talk show. At least we try not to be. And to be so culturally relevant, I'm even going to talk very briefly about the Barbie movie. Yes, I saw the Barbie movie, not on opening night. I didn't want to be too eager, but uh, being the dutifully loyal and uh, collegial and convivial husband that I am, I accompanied my lovely wife to the Barbie movie on Saturday. And uh, we actually have a clip from the Barbie movie right here that I can share with you. Actually, that would have been more enjoyable than the Barbie movie. No, that was a clip from the streets of Toronto where stuff like that is commonplace. Now, what I, I'm not going to do is do the whole... I like Ben Shapiro, but I'm not going to do the whole Ben Shapiro thing and give a 45-minute post-mortem of the Barbie movie. And I'm also not going to do what most other conservative commentators do, which is try to find some political angle to talk about how uh, this movie is everything that's wrong with the world and culture and society. Because actually, uh, even if the left likes to politicize anything and everything, I actually like entertainment as an escape from politics. And, and I will say, if you go to the movie, uh, I would have preferred to see Oppenheimer. I think maybe I'll see Oppenheimer. I haven't been to like a movie in five years, but this week I might just do like uh, Oppenheimer and Barbie. And I want to do that one about the Beanie Babies as well with uh, Zach Galifianakis. But I don't know, maybe I'll just get movied out and uh, go back to just listening to podcasts again. But uh, the one thing I will say is that yes, the Barbie movie has a bit of a preachiness to it. It talks about the patriarchy unironically. It talks about all these very ham-fisted uh, themes that, uh, you know, perhaps I wasn't the target market for as a 30-something male who's never had a Barbie in my life. But I, I will say the one thing that I, I did enjoy about the Barbie movie that I feel make, makes it so that people shouldn't be just ragging on it all the time is that it is very clear that there is a difference between a man and a woman. Uh, that's the one thing that I feel the movie did very well, is, is that it reinforced there is, in fact, a binary. There is a division between uh, what men and women are, and perhaps it might have even been a little bit too reductivist, because Barbie Land, where all the Barbies live, is bright and pink and colorful, and uh, all of them love it, and the man's world is gray and dark and drab. Now, maybe that was a little bit unkind to uh, the men who run Mattel, like Will Ferrell in the movie, uh, but I will say that that was actually an unintentional victory that I would say is that it's a movie that drives home the point that boys and girls are different and I'd say Barbies are actually one of the great examples of the differences between boys and girls now uh, of course if a boy did happen to pick up a Barbie in his younger years now he would uh, be put on hormones and uh, sent off to the doctor and given some gender affirming treatment instead of just being a boy that happened to have picked up a doll and enjoyed it but 
And here's the thing, you can just enjoy the world and enjoy artistic creations in it, and not everything has to be a political rant. That would be the one takeaway of that I would give you. But the big news today is not even news that's really happened yet. It is news that we are on the cusp of, and that is a cabinet shuffle. Tomorrow, Justin Trudeau is expected to make one of his biggest cabinet shuffles yet. Now, none of this is official. We're all getting like whispers and rumors and suggestions here. And I believe, you know, believe me when I say I am very proud of the work that True North does and I'm proud of our team. We are not exactly on the call list from the Liberal government when it comes to leaking who's going to be shoveled in and out of which portfolios and all of that. Uh, but there are going to be some big changes. And the last reporting I've seen from uh, CTV, the Globe and Mail, CBC, is that there are going to be seven, seven cabinet ministers who are out of cabinet after tomorrow's shuffle. Now, those seven cabinet ministers are David Lametti, Mona Fortier, Omar El Gabra, Joyce Murray, Helena Jasic, Carolyn Bennett, and Marco Mendicino. Yes, Marco Mendicino, the man for whom 22 is not a caliber of ammunition, but an IQ. Marco Mendicino is out. David Lametti, the guy who thinks that the mentally ill should be able to have the state's assistance in their execution, is out. Uh, Omar El Gabra, the guy who put a punitive vaccine mandate on truckers who worked solo and in isolation at a time when there was already a shortage of truckers, he is gone and a bunch of other nondescript folks as well. So we're going to see some movement here. Now, I just saw moments ago before I went on air, a Toronto Star uh, piece that says there are going to be 10 new faces promoted. And there was another story I saw in CTV, which said that pretty much everyone is getting changed. There are only a few people that aren't. Now, the downside of this is that Bill Blair, it sounds like, is going to be the defense minister. Now, I thought the really fun alternative would have been uh, Patty Haidu as defense minister or Mark Gerritsen as defense minister. Defense minister, Not good for the country, but would have been entertaining and would have given me some material material to work with here. But I do have, I mean, it's a very serious thing. And I, just to take a moment here and be a bit more somber, I don't celebrate anyone losing their jobs. And I, I thought it would actually be appropriate uh, to give a bit of a, a proper, solemn and sincere uh, send-off to the cabinet ministers who are departing tomorrow. Na 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 Oh Marco goodbye yeah don't let the door hit you on the way out listen i do not celebrate people's demises but i am not going to shed a tear for the people who have been responsible for the most heavy-handed and Orwellian infringements of civil liberties, of free speech, of mobility rights, uh, being told that they no longer have a place in the government of Canada. But of course, the one little send-off that the Trudeaus uh, give them is that they get to come up with a reason why they're being turfed. This was Omar Al Gabra, the uh, former transport minister now, who's resigning uh, from cabinet altogether. Uh, explaining why he is leaving cabinet. After almost 11 years as a member of parliament, two and a half years as a minister and six elections, 
I've made the difficult decision to not run in the next election. Until then, I will continue to serve the constituents of Mississauga Centre as their Member of Parliament. As a result of this decision, I'm also stepping aside from my role as Minister because the Prime Minister deserves a Cabinet who is committed to running in the next federal campaign. As the Minister of Transport, I helped lead our country through many challenging issues. We protected Canadians during COVID while supporting the transportation industry during an extraordinary period. We worked on reforming our aviation sector by enhancing transparency and accountability. We worked on improving our supply chain and established a supply chain office that will advance resilience and efficiency within our transportation network. We are moving closer to making the dream of a high-frequency passenger rail that connects Quebec City to Toronto a reality. Those are just a few examples of the important projects that I had the honor of working on that are important to Canada. So he's actually proud of his, he's actually proud of what he did when he was the transport minister. Well, I would not exactly be listing your real legacy on your resume moving forward, Omar El Gabra. I actually saw him at the airport a couple of days ago and I was, I uh, didn't have a chance to stop and chat because I was on my way to a flight, which I guess I did actually have time to stop and chat because the flight ended up being delayed. And if you look at the delay board uh, for any airline at any airport in Canada, you'll see Omar El Gabra really doesn't have all that much of which to be proud. Uh, but I'm just quibbling here. I mean, airport, airport delays are a much smaller sin than the punitive restrictions that were put on the aviation sector, on the transport sector, on truckers, pilots, flight attendants, and many other people in the country, which Omar El Gabra was all too happy to be the deliverer of. And I will say, when you look at some of the other folks that are going out, Marco Mendicino, and David Lametti. These were the guys that were having their little text message bromance uh, joking about maybe sending in the tanks to deal with the truckers. <laughs> oh, what's, uh, what's not to joke about, about possibly a, a Tiananmen Square recreation to deal with people protesting your government? Who doesn't just kick back and enjoy some gallows humor at the expense of the plebs that you are supposed to be representing? And Carolyn Bennett, again, one of the most, uh, I would say, inconsequential members of cabinet, although one of the most lauded, obviously. She's just venerated by people. You dare to say anything even mildly critical of uh, Carolyn Bennett, and you have the entire Shamrock Brigade jumping down your throat for days and weeks and months, even when she, as the woman in cabinet supposedly representing Indigenous people, uh, starts sharing these little snippy text messages when Jody Race, uh, Wilson Raybould dares to step a little bit out of line and assert her independence. And Carolyn Bennett, you may recall, was uh, texting about oh, how she uh, just might be in it for a pension. And they, she she accidentally texted that to Jody Wilson-Raybould. Again, uh, Carolyn Bennett may be a doctor, not necessarily the sharpest knife, the sharpest scalpel on the surgical tray, to use a, a medical term. But uh, the one thing I will point out here about this is that there are many reasons for this change, and we don't yet know what they are. Certainly, it's an entire major reset of the Trudeau government. There's no denying that whatsoever. He's saying that uh, people effectively were not performing in their positions. Now, uh, here's the thing, though. 
is he doing this because a fall election is coming up? Is he doing this because we know he knows we're going to be going to the polls in the fall and he wants to be able to get rid of the folks who aren't running again, put the best foot forward and say, this is the team we're running on? Because that was Omar al Gabra's point, which is, well, uh, he deserves a cabinet of people that are committed to running in the next election. Well, if the next election is not until 2024 or even 2025, it seems a little bit weird to relegate your cabinet ministers, some very prominent ministers, to the backbenches for two years, which you only do if they are completely and utterly incompetent and you don't, don't belong in your cabinet. But of course, he can't say that. So there's a lot unspoken here. Now, Marco Mendicino, it's not just the firearms file that he's bungled. It isn't just the Nova Scotia shooting file he's bungled. It isn't just the Paul Bernardo file he's bungled. It isn't just the Emergencies Act. Marco Mendicino is a guy, if he puts both his shoes on in the morning, I think he probably gets a gold star because that is seen as a victory for a man of his intellectual magnitude. But we will talk about Marco Mendicino a little bit more tomorrow. Uh, here's the thing. Last week, Justin Trudeau was asked about Marco Mendicino, and he was specifically point blank asked if he had confidence in Marco Mendicino. And I want you to listen to his answer. Prime Minister, you didn't directly answer the question about um, your public safety minister. Do you have confidence in him to continue after this uh, handling of the Bernardo transfer file? I have uh, an amazing team. Uh, in Ottawa and an amazing group of MPs uh, right across the country who are committed to serving their country every single day uh, and uh, anyone in my cabinet by definition has my confidence. Merci beaucoup tout le monde. Anyone in my cabinet by definition has my confidence. So it stands to reason that anyone not in his cabinet does not have his confidence. And I, I'm probably going to play that clip again tomorrow, because when you see all the people that are being demoted, that are being pulled out of cabinet, it actually doesn't sound all that surprising that Justin Trudeau may be saying that, okay, these folks are dead weight and have to go. So if as we're seeing, Marco Mendicino is out, David Lametti is out, Joyce Murray, Carolyn Bennett, uh, Helena Jacek, all of these people, I mean, only a handful of them have, have used that I'm not running again excuse. So the ones that are running again, but are either demoted or removed altogether, this is Justin Trudeau saying without saying that they are actually morons or failures or that he does not have confidence in their performance. So look, are these people running, not running again because they believe that the Trudeau government is a sinking ship? Or are they not running again because they've been told this is the way you get out by saving a little bit of face? Or is something else entirely happening here? Like, I I'm convinced that Jagmeet Singh is going to keep this government alive until 2025, that he's not going to pull the plug on it because he knows that the next election means the next loss, which means he's done. He's got no real ability to stay on as NDP leader after another loss. Trudeau knows after he's got to either get a majority or he's out. So he needs to either uh, call the election when he thinks he'll get the majority or engineer something that forces the liberals to keep him in power. So maybe he thinks that if the economy is going to get worse and worse, that his path to staying in power is a fall election. Or maybe he realizes that he's actually just got to milk this supply and confidence agreement to 2025 because then he'll get two extra years in power as opposed to zero extra years. I, I'm not going to claim to have a crystal ball 
But I will say that, uh, I mean, like Jagmeet Singh, I, I have no balls here. I, I don't have the ability to see the future. But what I am going to say is that there's not going to be a, a way forward for the Liberal government without something majorly changing. And I'm sorry, but you can put some like, you know, disinfectant and room spray and try to make this, uh, you know, the House of Commons and the cabinet room smell a little bit better, but you're not going to be able to turn around a fundamentally flawed government whose direction, whose path that it's proceeding in has been as dangerous and damaging as it is. And, and I mean, Christia Freeland, who it sounds like from the reports I've read is staying in power. It sounds like she's staying as finance minister. When she goes out and about and is talking about, oh, inflation is so low and everything's great. I mean, that is not translating to the real world. That's not translating to the real experiences of people in this country. And I mean, this is actually a good segue into this uh, report that came out from TD. And we invited the author of the report, who I, I don't actually believe responded at all. I mean, maybe they declined, but I, I don't think they, they got back to us at all, uh, which is unfortunate because I'm, I'm a TD client. I give TD a lot of money. But uh, TD has said Canada's standard of living is falling behind. And this report talks about the fact that, well, there may be some on-paper economic growth in this country. It's not translating in the real economy to real prosperity for real Canadians. And I, I think this is a very important report because it's saying that Canada has been lagging behind the U.S., behind other advanced economies. The, the money quote here, no pun intended, from the report author, economic growth does not necessarily equate to economic prosperity. Want to unpack this and some of the other economic trends a little bit more here with Philip Cross, who is the former chief economic analyst at Statistics Canada and is also a Monk Senior Fellow in Economics for the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Philip, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me back, Andrew. So, I mean, let's first off talk about the sales pitch that the federal government is giving here, which is that everything is great. I mean, that is probably the least convincing pitch if you talk to real people in this country. But what is it they're drawing from that's making things look so rosy? Uh, as an economist, frankly, I'm a, at a bit at a loss. Probably that the unemployment rate is uh, at such a low level. And a lot of that reflects more that a lot of people left the labor force that were having trouble finding workers and finding people to do jobs, not that they're not that the economy is booming. Uh, if you look at any other metric, whether it's um, uh, GDP growth, incomes, uh, inflation, and in particular, if you look at the most dynamic uh, sectors of the economy, the ones that determine our growth going forward, which are business invest investment and exports, we're way down the uh, totem pole on, the, on these measures. Yeah, and I, I think this TD report, I mean, obviously the banks have their own forecasts and, you know, you could find three economists and between them perhaps five opinions on uh, what's happening in a particular country here. But I, I think when we're looking at the way that we're lagging behind other advanced economies on standard of living, that, that's very key here because a lot of the times we've been told uh, by our government that, oh, well, you know, when we compare ourselves to the US and the UK and European countries, we're, we're doing great. But here we are, we're not in that same league right now. No, and I'd encourage your um, viewers, instead of looking at the TD report, look at my report that came up from the Fraser Institute a couple weeks ago that covered a lot of this ground, uh, that noted that uh, our GDP growth has fallen way behind the U.S. That was true before the pandemic. It occurred during the pandemic. And now in the recovery uh, from the pandemic, 
we've fallen behind the U.S. by a good 10 percentage points in growth. And as I said, it's, it's especially because of if you compare the, the sectors, what explains this difference between the U.S. and Canada, it's especially business investment and uh, exports. You can't blame this on an aging economy. You can't say that we've exhausted technological changes. It's something very specific to this country. And uh, in this report, basically, I go on that, uh, that I think it's an increasingly anti-business culture and, and way of talking to, to firms that uh, I find is the biggest difference between Canada and the U.S., yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because you, you mentioned, and I, I think I actually pulled the quote out here, you, you talk about the fact that uh, the importance of a nation's culture to economic growth. Without a culture that supports entrepreneurship and innovation, even the best policies and institutions will produce disappointing results. So right now we have, I think, this tendency, especially when we're talking about inflation, for our leaders to just say, well, Canada is a passenger in a global trend right now. It's like, oh, there's inflation in the UK. So inflation in Canada is not really our fault. It's everywhere. Whereas you're saying that in Canada, there actually is something that's a very specific and uniquely Canadian phenomenon that's driving down growth. Uh, very much so. And it's because business investment in this country over the last decade has fallen 20%. Well, in the U.S., it's grown 20% over the same period. Uh, and the importance of business investment is that it embeds technological changes. It, it drives your competitors going forward. That's why, again, over the last decade, our exports have fallen slightly while the U.S. has continued to grow. So uh, it's something very specific, and it's, you know, it's very specific to business investment and exports. Uh, yes, we've tried to fluff up growth by having uh, low interest rates and having large government uh, deficits and spending and having a housing boom. But none of those are sustainable in the long run if you don't have investment, jobs, and exports. We're an exporting nation. We count on exports for one-third of our income. Uh, between exports and business investment, you have well over a third of our economy going absolutely nowhere. Uh, this is going to result in stagnant incomes over the longer term. Now, how much, I mean, you talk about how culture changes slowly here, and, I, and I'm wondering how much of it is really influenced by changes in government, or if the culture has sort of a, an evolution in this country that is influenced, yes, but not as radically by policy changes. Well, that's the one thing I ha I'm optimistic about, is that culture j does change slowly. I think there really is a... Uh, a desire or still a, an impulse for innovation and entrepreneurship in this country. I don't think you can kill that off. But at the same time, you know, you go back to, you know, you talked about the TD uh, report. Economists have been recommending that governments in this country do a lot of things that the governments have actually done. You know, we've adopted free trade with all the major G7 countries. We have the highest level of education in the G7. We subsidize research and development uh, like crazy, as shown by the, the huge subsidies given to the auto firms recently. So we've done a lot of things, and yet our growth continues to sputter. And that's why I go back to saying it's probably more than just a, a little tweak of a policy here or there. We have to go back and look at how it is we talk to the business sector internationally and in, the, in this country to make firms want to invest and spend in this country. 
Now, I want to just preface this by saying what I'm about to argue is not at all my point, but I, I'm trying to say, you know, how would the government right now federally respond to your point? And they'd say, well, just look at the 13 billion we've given to Volkswagen. Look at the billions we're handing out in corporate subsidies. That's that's uh, showing our investment in business, our investment in entrepreneurship. What yeah. what would you say to that? Because that's the government's answer to you saying there's not a business climate here is to throw money at these companies. Yeah. Well, I think what the government really revealed itself was when the head of Germany came over last winter in the middle of a major crisis. I mean, I was in Europe last winter. Trust me, it was cold. It, it mm -hmm. was cold in restaurants. I mean, they turned the temperature down. They were they ran out of natural gas. So the head of Germany comes over here. He asked Canada to step up natural gas exports. We respond by saying, no, there isn't a business case for it. Yeah. Are you kidding? Which is news to the people there wanting to buy it. Yeah, here's a head of a, G, a fellow G7 country who we should be disposed to help out just because he's a fellow G7, never mind that he's a good customer, asking us to increase our energy exports, and we say there isn't a business case. Uh, that's farcical. Uh, we won't build pipelines. We, we dis, uh, discourage oil and gas investment. Uh, that's the type of, and, and the, you know, oil and gas is the largest industry in this country, not auto manufacturing. Uh, this is oil and gas is twice as important as the auto industry. So, yes, you can go out and give subsidies to the auto industry, whether or not they'll pay off in the long term. I don't know. As uh, many people pointed out, you know, it's not at all clear that uh, who's going to win the electric uh, vehicle wars in the future. Um, but, you know, while we're doing that, we're discouraging an industry that is twice as important just the oil and gas industry by itself, never mind adding in pipelines and industries like that. So I think the government revealed its true colors about the way it talks to the to the business community in the way that uh, it responded to Schultz's uh, request last winter. Uh, is your view, I mean, because to go back to the global picture here, and I, I think inflation has probably been one of the most acute measures of of the, the state of the economy, if you were to talk to most people, because it's the one they're seeing, but in general, unemployment and, and all of this factors in as well. But but is your view that if Canada had implemented some of the stuff you're talking about, that we would have been a little bit more insulated from some of these global trends over the last couple of years? Oh, I think certainly, um, partly because, you know, uh, the biggest source of inflation over the last year was food and energy. And the government stands back and goes, oh, that's something we don't control. Actually, because we import so much food and our, our gasoline prices are directly linked to the U.S., every time the Canadian dollar drops, uh, that costs consumers uh, higher food and energy and, and uh, other prices for imported goods. It's quite striking that when the last winter, when the oil and gas prices blew through the roof, our dollar didn't do anything. And it's because the international community understood that there, our government would not allow more investment in, in the oil and gas industry, and we wouldn't be able to profit from that. If we allowed the oil and gas industry to profit from those high prices, the dollar would have risen, gas, gasoline and food prices would have come down, and inflation would have been lower. So there's a direct connection between the two. Philip Cross is with us. He is with, I mean, you're basically with everywhere. You're with the Fraser Institute, McDonald Laurier, formerly Statistics Canada, and you produce great work wherever you are. Thanks so much for coming on, Philip. Always good to talk to you.
my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. And listen, I, I mean, we can talk about the divide more fundamentally here between the financial economy and the real economy. The on-paper picture when uh, Christian Freeland holds up a, a chart and says, oh, you know, look, inflation's at an all-time low, and then uh, you go and can't afford to buy eggs at the grocery store, or you buy, I mean, th this has happened to my wife recently. She went to the grocery store, uh, bought, uh, you know, groceries for however long, and I don't even think, I can't remember what, what the, the final dollar value was, but it was something absurd like you know $250 and we're a household of two and I mean sure yes make your jokes but contrary to how I look I don't actually eat as much as you're all thinking I do and that's what people are seeing that is what the family of four the family of five the family of six is seeing they're not actually seeing Christian Freeland's graph I mean they, they, that should be the federal government plan right now is you know put put a, a picture of Christian Freeland pointing to the graph on the grocery store uh, self-checkout screen so that you can all just look at that and then look at the bill beside it and see, hmm, which one makes a little bit more sense? But right now the government is going to be gaslighting people into thinking that their finances are a lot better than they actually are. And, and all of this, to go back to the cabinet shuffle discussion we had a few moments ago, is weighing here on what is happening in the political climate. So uh, the polling that we've seen uh, is that Justin Trudeau has been voted the worst prime minister in 55 years. Now, admittedly, this is one, one poll. I mean, you, you always have to take polls with a, a grain of salt. I mean, if you can afford to buy salt at the grocery store, you can uh, use a grain to analyze the poll numbers. Uh, but this was a survey that was done of a thousand Canadians by a research company. And Justin Trudeau was the worst PM of the last 55 years. Now, if you're a, a raw, 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 rock-ribbed conservative, it's not all good news because the second worst was Stephen Harper and the third worst was Kim Campbell. Uh, and if I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm amazed that enough people remembered Kim Campbell's name to rank her as the third worst prime minister of the last 55 years. Uh, and in contrast, they said Pierre Trudeau was the best in recent memory. So again, kind of a tough one uh, because you can't really trust the sample that says Pierre Trudeau is the best prime minister. But the point is, the shine has certainly come off of Justin Trudeau. I mean, I've always said, you know, it looks like he's glimmering and shining. It's actually just some um, lingering residue from the shoe polish uh, that he parades around wearing. But the reality is that there is not this massive momentum there is not this Trudeau mania 2.0 that's carrying him. I mean, this is a government that right now is effectively on life support. Now, uh, if the government is on life support, that means David Lametti will just like kick out the plug and kill it off permanently. That is the government's made policy on, on actual life support. But the, the reality is this is not a government that has any real popularity. I mean, you can look at the few unhinged people on Twitter that really love to just go rah, 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 Justin Trudeau. But even they... They must know right now that they're selling snake oil. They're selling a government that is spinning its tires and not really producing anything of value. Like I was reading, and again, it's all just rumored until it's official, that Pablo Rodriguez, the guy who gave us C-11 and C-18, is going to replace Omar Al-Gabra as Minister of Transport. Now, just... 
just to look at the optics for a moment, Pablo Rodriguez is a guy who some years back, uh, police said, was driving with alcohol on his breath and refused to take a breath test. And he was charged about that. So that's what you want in a transport minister, a guy where the police have said that you're not actually transporting yourself in accordance with the law. He's going to be the the next uh, the next transport minister, according to some of these reports. Uh, but again, the guy like who would look at Bill C-18? which is the bill that has made it so that news outlets cannot share their content on Facebook. And C11, which is forcing web companies to manipulate their algorithms to serve up content Trudeau likes. Who would say, you know, those bills, we want to take that level of government efficiency and apply it to the transportation sector. We want to let the guy that forced, the, the guy that lost a game of chicken with Facebook and Google and we want him to be responsible for movement of Canadians around the country. Like, give Pablo Rodriguez a, a week in the transport minister job, and all of a sudden Air Canada will decide that it wants to pull out of the aviation sector. That's the level of competence we can expect from Pablo Rodriguez. So this is where the government is going right now, and I'm sorry, but it's not going to get any better. So the question you have to ask Canadians is who's still buying this, and what do they want out of it? Because if an election were held today, I'm not convinced Justin Trudeau loses. Like, we, we can talk about polling and we can say, oh, well, yes, the shine's come off and he's not that popular. But, but you know that the media will, when push comes to shove, say Polyev's the bad guy, Trudeau's the good guy. Maybe reluctantly, maybe he's, he's flawed but necessary. Uh, and it's like, oh, well, yes, he needs a little good counterbalance. You know, he needs the NDP to be the conscience of the liberal government because that's been just so useful for Canadians the last little while. And, and again, I know a lot of this is so speculative. I don't know if there's going to be an election in a month or an election in a year or an election in two years. But what I do know is that things right now are not going well for Canada. And the government cannot be allowed to get away with this attempt to gaslight Canadians into thinking that things are just going swimmingly here. Now, I, I'm told by one of my colleagues that True North did a little poll in the comments on, I don't know if it's Facebook or, or YouTube or Rumble, I don't know, wherever it is right now. Uh, YouTube, Sean says. And, and we've asked, is Justin Trudeau the worst PM of the last 50 years? And uh, shockingly, 97% have said yes. Now, uh, these are kind of looking like uh, Kim Jong-un election results right now. I don't think it's a representative sample, but certainly of, of those watching this program, 97% of you think that uh, Trudeau is the worst PM in the last 50 years. And 3% of you either clicked the wrong thing or are tuned into the wrong show. You thought you were uh, listening to Andrew Lloyd Webber and it was actually Andrew Lawton. So uh, take from that what you will. Um, but uh, just a, a little bit of a side note here, a complete deviation. I, I meant to talk about this last week. I am a recycling scofflaw. So I, I actually got for the first time, and I'm very proud of this, I got an official notice on my recycling bin. Uh, this does not belong in the blue box. Uh, when I, I live in London, Ontario. Uh, when recycling is not done right, it costs taxpayers $250,000 per year. Help us cut costs. Now, I shared this because, like, as many of you know, I have this long-running uh, resentment uh, towards bylaw enforcement. I, like, I, I hate bylaw enforcement. I find it useless. And if all the municipal uh, bylaws were gone, I think we'd be a freer and happier people. But uh, nevertheless, this is not like a bylaw notice. It was stuck on by the uh, blue box uh, pickup guy. 
who left. So we put out two recycling bins because actually we try to do things right. We, we try to, you know, put out the one bin with the plastic and the one bin with the cardboard. And I guess the plastic and metal go together. I, they, they throw them into the same truck, I think. Anyway, uh, so what happened was uh, the, the, they picked up the one with all the, the cardboard. They picked that up. They left the other one and stuck this little judgmental preachy note on it. And what had happened was a, a few weeks ago, we had some contractors and they, uh, this was a few months ago, actually, and they left some like leftover vapor barrier or some plastic drop sheet or whatever it was that they never ended up using. And they just left it in the backyard. And for like months, I've been just looking at this thing, not doing anything with it. And then I was bringing out the recycling and I just said, you know, this is plastic. Let me just, and it's not a huge sheet. I just, let me just fold it nicely and stick it in the recycling bin because I thought, okay, it's plastic. They're taking plastic. This is the whole point of the recycling process. And it was like, there was so little of it that it didn't even rise above the surface of the recycling bin. And this was enough for them to say no and give me the note that said I'm getting dinged or I'm, I'm contributing to like some $250,000 expenditure. They're trying to like prey on my fiscal conservatism by saying that, you know, you're punishing the taxpayers by your inability to recycle. And I'm like, you know what? You're punishing me, the taxpayer, by being stupid right now. So uh, that, that was it. So uh, I, I actually like want to just put this on my uh, computer or something. I just like, I'm very proud of it. Maybe I'll just wear it around. This is like the new scarlet letter. This is the, the new scarlet letter you just wear around and, and be a recycling scofflaw. So uh, we are tomorrow going to have more of a full report for you on the Trudeau cabinet shuffle. The question we've asked in the title of this show, is this a sign that the Liberal government is a sinking ship? Let us know in the comments. We'll read some of those on tomorrow's show. Uh, do you think there's an election coming in the fall or do you think this is just trying to get rid of the dead weight and put a fresh face forward for the next month, year, two years, however long it takes? So this is the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show on True North. We will talk to you all tomorrow at 4 o'clock Eastern. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.